0: Welcome to the ninth episode of the Talent Intelligence Collective podcast. Before I intro this one, I wanted to let you know about an extra special offer our wonderful sponsor Strategens are offering to all of our listeners. If you go to the Strategens website at strategens.com, that's S T R A T I G E N S dot com, book a demo, and enter the promotional code T I C 2021, you'll get a discount and a free proof of concept. How fabulous! Anyway, back to the episode. In this one, me, Alan Walker, Alison Ettridge, and Toby Coulshaw co-hosted an episode where we spoke to the man of many talents that is Chris Long. We talked about the current state of talent intelligence in Australia, the evolution of the function, and his unique view on applying data to drive both strategic and tactical decision-making, including an incredible example of how data convinced his team to retrain divers to be project managers. Nick wasn't able to join us, unfortunately, but he'll be back for the next episode. Have fun. Before we get on with the main event, I just wanted to remind you that this podcast is proudly sponsored by our friends at Strategens, and here's a very well-spoken chat to tell you a little bit
1: more about them. Strategens gives HR leaders the data they need to transform businesses with the speed and ease required in today's world. If you're ready to make decisions that aren't lengthy, costly, one-dimensional, or based on gut feeling, visit strategens.com. That's S-T-R-A-T-I-G-E-N-S dot com to register for a Wednesday demo drop-in and find out more.
0: Hello, hello, hello. I'm Alan Walker and welcome to episode nine of the Talent Intelligence Collective podcast. Yay! There's our little cheerer. Um, Today we're going down under. More on that in a second, which means we're recording this at an ungodly hour for me and my British-based co-hosts. I'm delighted as ever to be joined by Toby Coulshaw of Amazon and Alison Ettridge of Talent Intuition. but I'm sorry to say that for this episode, we're missing Nick Brooks of Microsoft. Apparently, he has something more important to do. Um, Putting aside how offended we are at the mere thought that something could be more important than this podcast... We will welcome him back with open arms for the next episode. Of course, um, we also have our guest with us, um, one of my brethren from the Midlands—that's north of London, if you're wondering. International folk and, uh, and now adopted Aussie from Alanda, Alanda, Chris Long. Welcome to the podcast, Chris. Why don't you introduce yourself to our audience?
2: Thanks, Alan. Um, yeah, uh, I'm Chris Long. Been over here in Australia for the last ten years, um, and I'm currently heading up global
0: talent solutions for Preactor. Excellent. Thank you. Um, it's great to have you on the show. And just to warn you that we've had some great guests on so far. So you've got a lot to live up to. No pressure, mate. No pressure. Oh,
2: no, lots um, so
0: <laughs> <laughs> I think many listeners will now be familiar with the format of the show. But for Chris's benefit, um, in just a minute, Toby's going to lead us through a discussion of some of the more exciting happenings in the world of talent intelligence news views industry insights all that jazz and then alison and toby will up upon chris and fire questions at him about his career and work in and around talent intelligence and i'll just sit here i'm gonna say looking but you can't see me sounding as handsome as i usually do so why don't we crack on toby what's happening in the world of talent intelligence
3: Yeah, so quite a few interesting bits at the moment. Um, Kicking off, we we saw a study from the the guys over at Indeed, so Pavel, does some amazing stuff, as we know. Uh, They did a a study recently about the office is not dead. Um, It was all around the fact that they saw a big shift, essentially, of the the roles being advertised, and it's gone from remote roles back towards temporarily remote. So it's suggesting from that side of things that they're, they're not seeing the, the sort of spike on full remote roles that they, they saw um, and people are tending to go back towards the office, um, which is quite interesting in itself. It kind of ties into something we discussed previously around um, the hollowing out of cities in America and, and that people were still wanted that flexibility, they still wanted to get into an office. So it's interesting to see that the data over here is uh, running a similar story, to be honest, not dissimilar at all. So that's quite interesting. Um, also, just on the whole remote work piece, there was a really interesting study on nonverbal overload. So it was looking at Zoom fatigue. Um, for me, that's one of the areas I, I don't think is really being factored in too much in terms of how we're working at the moment and, and how it's, the, the remote work is impacting things. Zoom fatigue and the sheer amount of screen time that, that people are having compared to a, a normal working environment Um, is really, I think, a really, really interesting element. And and I think we're seeing a huge amount of fatigue and a huge amount of burnout because of that. Um, And I think that's probably going to get worse in the next few quarters. I think we've been in survival mode for for basically a year. People are getting tired of that, and and they're they're seeing kind of the fatigue side come in. So I I think we're we're going to see a real change of how people use remote um, meetings and video meetings and and things like Zoom to try and redress and rebalance that. That's quite an interesting area.
4: I loved that one, Toby. I I just thought it was really interesting for me because it was kind of like, you know, everyone got all excited and we've worked remotely for years. And then suddenly it's just like, oh, because it is back-to-back. It's why I love the podcast because I don't feel the need to look at you in the eye the whole time. And and in that piece, there was this whole section it was a photograph of people in a big boardroom. And it I remember it, it was just so clear. Not everybody was looking at the speaker mm. and it didn't feel rude. Whereas on Zoom... If you're kind of not looking at the speaker, if you're looking the other way, it feels rude, Rude, doesn't it? It's so intense. I just thought it was fascinating, that one.
0: And you're not intently just yeah. even looking at one person, are you, on there? Sometimes your eyes are darting around looking at all four, five, six, seven people are on screen and trying to pay attention as well as trying to look normal yourself whilst you're doing it. Yeah. It's, it's quite tiring without knowing, without realising it.
4: And it's also like musical chairs, right, because people move on Zoom. You know, they don't do that in a meeting room. But, yeah, you know, the kind of camera positions, depending on where they are and who's talking, people move around all the time. It's like, whoa, God, what's happened to Chris? He's disappeared over here. Yeah, that, that doesn't happen in a meeting room. <laughs> you can kind of sit, you can make notes, you can kind of look pensive. You can, yeah, I just, I think it's fascinating how it will play out. But we're not hearing uh, across any of our clients that they are going to return to fully in the office. Not really? one of them said that, yeah. So they are all... Um, they're all kind of pondering two to three days. Um, the brave ones are being completely flexible. Um, but actually, I heard yesterday, I was talking to a, a publishing company yesterday who's a client, which was really interesting. And they were saying that actually their employees wanted clarity. They didn't care whether it was two days, three days, four days, five days. They just wanted somebody to tell them. They weren't prepared to kind of make that decision themselves as employees. And I thought that was quite So they want, to a, they
0: want a framework then? Yeah, Chris. What are you you, now? Chris announced. I saw on social media. He's one of the. He's the first person I know to go on a plane in the last twelve months. Yeah, so he's like been crazy meeting real people face to face and stuff. I know, right? So
2: these two articles really, um, I suppose, got me thinking because the first one just like the office is not dead. Um, The office has not been dead for us for well since June last year, right? Um, So. I was back in the office June last year. My kids were back to school in May last year. Um, And I was saying to many, many people that both Alan and I know, I was like, no, I think you'll go back to the office or you'll have a hybrid. And I've been saying this for for quite some time, and, you know, especially the guys over in the US. No, everything will be fully remote, remote anywhere, anytime. And I was like, I just just don't Mm -hmm. feel that that's going to be a thing. Um, And then obviously... Mm -hmm start of this year and especially with the vaccine being rolled out i know that a lot of the us guys are saying oh yeah it's going to be a hybrid model and i was like yep uh we've kind of had that i mean i'm four days back in the office i kind of just now work from home on a thursday just so i can get my admin done um zoom fatigue um that also tied in we didn't really have it like i say we probably only went on lockdown for six weeks and even that wasn't what you guys have had over in the UK, right? Um, So it's been really different from my perspective, watching the rest of the world. I suppose the only thing that my country did um, to stop is just close its international borders, right? Um, So we can't leave and no one can get in. Um, So we've just kind of contained ourselves in that manner. But I've got to say um, these two articles, I just couldn't understand Zoom fatigue. I do get when I do have to do Zoom sometimes, um, because we did have that we couldn't cross our borders that was a bit of a pain, and, like Alan alluded to yeah, we can now cross borders, and I jumped on a plane last week, so um very different from my perspective to seeing what the rest of the world's doing.
0: Just, yeah, your kind of yeah. exposure to it that's interesting
4: yeah it's that's so yeah if I think back to the start of this um yeah i'm I'm listening to Chris now and jealous because he's got on a plane. And yet, right at the very beginning of this, I was sick and tired of spending two to three days a week getting on a plane. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's just, yeah. Now I'm like, oh, my God, he got on an actual plane and went yeah. somewhere.
2: <laughs> it was amazing. I'd not done it for a year, and I was so excited to get to the airport, then got to the airport and went what do I do now um so <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't even uh, need my passport or anything, but um yeah it was but it was great. I've got to admit I love being. Back did home.
0: you see the value in those were were those meetings different because they were face to face one hundred
2: yeah, hundred percent it just got done there and then, um, and you know like in a, when you're in a meeting face-to-face you can I know you can whiteboard on zoom but you need to take people on a journey of your way of thinking right and sometimes zoom and those interactive whiteboard just don't work and you can't read the audience you know whoever you're presenting to the same um so yeah it was just totally different and I loved being back face-to-face I mean I've been doing that in Sydney um for a while Mm. But um, yeah, I mean, it's just totally different taking people on a journey face to face than it is over a screen.
3: I think that's that's the point, though. It's being deliberate so about am, why you're doing the face to face. And I, I was actually listening to another podcast that, um, um, this morning. Um, yeah, to, I mean, you can just you know, publicise well, Why not publicise other things? It's a great um, podcast. It was the uh, HBR Idea Idea Cast. And um, Anne Law Fayard, who's the associate professor at um, NYU's Tandon School of Eng- Engineering, was talking about workplace design, and uh, she, she made a very good point that a lot of companies are doing flexi work, as we say, and they're saying, you know, you, you, this bunch of people come in Monday and Wednesday, this bunch Tuesday and Thursday, but the problem is that with that is you're losing all of the coincidental interactions that you'd have between those groups, so you're ending up the the kind of the system of trying to get people back to the office to have this creative environment and this innovative environment wasn't actually necessarily working because people were coming in and they're seeing the same people they'd see every Monday, every Wednesday, and you weren't having that collaborative and creative environment. So I think to Chris's point, I think being deliberate about why you're going in is really important.
4: Yeah, completely agree. What, what was the um, article around private equity, JB?
3: Yeah, so there, there's, uh, there's actually one of a few articles I've seen recently um, looking at private equity and VC firms, and, and looking at how they're investing far more in, um, in in talent, especially talent intelligence, talent acquisition, talent analytics, just basically understanding the talent within the, the potential target organisations and how to, to maximise that. It, it's an area I, I think we've we've seen a bit of a growth in the last twelve months, but I think it's a fascinating area. I think you know if you look at the vast majority of investments, the vast majority of M and A's. The, the vast majority that fail it's generally due to culture fit and, and talent fit or, or scalability. So I, I think understanding the, the, the talent and the, the feasibility of expands, et cetera, really, really cool. So yeah, I think it's a really interesting place at the moment. The, the other article that I saw that uh, I think is going to be worth highlighting uh, is uh, Randy Bailey mentioned it over on the group. And it's all tied back to something we discussed a little while back, which was the SEC filings. And that the data um, that the SEC are going to start requesting from companies, we're starting to see that coming in now. But I think the, the fascinating thing for me on it all is at the moment, it's still very disjointed. You're getting very, lots of very different data sets coming through, really inconsistent. And, and it's really not um, giving a huge amount of value because it's, it's very hard to get under the hood and actually understand what's going on with that. What, what are these companies actually saying? It's, you can't really compare I think it's going to be really interesting, though, um, and and the article in particular uh, was highlighting that I think once the SEC starts saying, well, actually, we want consistency, we we want to have these standardized metrics, um, I think that's going to be really, really powerful. So, yeah, really really keeping a close eye on what the SEC commissioner and the administration say, because I, I think this year will probably be a bit of a test year, what happens beyond um, is going to be, yeah, re- really, really interesting on, on that side of things.
4: I don't think they've
3: mandated, though, have they, at the moment? It feels like
4: the metrics are still pretty loose and open.
3: Very much so. Very much so. So it's, it's guidance at the moment. Um, and I, I think almost coming back to the private equity and the VC side of things, I, I think as companies are starting to to look to invest into organisations, I, I, I think that that's where the pressure is going to come from. If they're, If they're starting to say, well, actually, we need to understand – um, your 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 TA metrics or your employer brand metrics or your uh, HR metrics in much more granular detail, and we need it consistent across all the organizations so that we can make true and fair comparisons, et cetera. Um, I, th- I think that's where we're going to get the, the the real value because at, at the moment, as you say, it's not mandated, and even though the companies are publishing data, they're not necessarily being hugely granular, and it's not very, very transparent about what what's going on.
0: Do you think for those organisations that are sharing, does that give them any kind of competitive advantage at all in the talent marketplace, that transparency, where they're being transparent anyway?
3: Um, honestly, I'm not too sure. Uh, I think the, the way that the, the data is being published at the moment, it it it's not done in the same way as, say, um, some DNI data that's very, very uh, public, has whole sections of the website specifically dedicated, et cetera quite often this information is hidden deep into the filings and you've got to kind of dig through the papers to find it. Um, I think ultimately it could be. I think ultimately you will see tools that are cross-comparing different organizations, and and I think it it will be something that candidates could look at, Um, whether that's purely candidates that work within HR Mm. and they look at it to see, well, actually, is that the sort of organization I I want to join? Uh, Do they have the sort of health metrics I'd, I'd like to look at? I don't know. I don't know. I, but I, for me, I'd lo- I'd love it to, to be more visible. I think it, w- it would be great if it was front and center, and it, and it was um, a kind of a health check for the organisation and, and out there for, for people to look at.
0: And as 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 TI professionals, is is that kind of information, that kind of data, useful to you and and what you do in your day jobs?
3: For me, yeah, absolutely. Okay, I think it will, yes, absolutely. With the caveat being, once it's consistent. Um, and once you've got things that you can compare to an extent, um, apples with apples. You know, I, th- I think what when it's all very very dirty data and you, you don't really know what you're looking at. If people are saying time to hire, what do they actually mean by that? Um, if they're saying cost per hire, what do they actually mean mm. by that? You know, we have en- enough struggles and in inverted commas. Um, with the, the the cleanliness of data when we're looking at D and I work, for example, and, and companies potentially uh, double counting on different different um, reports, etc. So I, th- I think what, once we've got consistency, um, which is what I'm, I'm hoping the, the SEC uh, push, I think that will be really really valuable. Um, I think the bigger piece though is that it's it it will go beyond uh, HR. And once these sort of data sets will go beyond beyond HR and it's the broader business, it's the M&A teams, et cetera, and the strategy teams, and the investment teams, once they're interested in this sort of work, I think that will really elevate TI once again into the rest of the org.
4: Yeah, and that's something for me that's really interesting. If I and, and I'd love to hear Chris's views on this. Yeah, So Australia was one of the first countries to mandate um a quota against diversity against gender diversity so actually that was yeah that was very regulation led which i think was quite interesting um i'd love to know whether there are any other regulations in australia that are human capital management led and if we've therefore seen more benchmarking across organizations what have you seen any of that chris at
2: at the moment like you say the diversity piece is the one that is being driven um and probably taking over all of Um, the airspace Um, so I haven't seen anything else um, that they've mandated at the moment but I do know that they are talking about that being ex-government you know a couple of years ago Um, so yeah I I think we will see it coming definitely um, as they now start to look at probably the internal workforce as well Um, so I do know that they've started to really restrict um, like external people coming into the country. So I know that they'll start um, mandating internal talent over external talent over the next probably 12 to 18 months. But it's not fully been mandated yet. But the diversity piece is um, something that they are leading from the front with.
0: So the Australian that- government are starting to clamp down a little bit on immigration, or in essence? Oh,
2: 100 you so, so this is part of the external data that I collect through my work that. They're just not giving visas out. So we used to, I mean, myself, I came in on um, a working visa. Um, they're just not open to giving that out. Now, they're never going to say that to the rest of the world because you can still apply, but they're just not freely being um, granted, shall we say. Um, even recruitment visas, I know, have gone on um, a deferred period when people are coming up to extend. Um so it's just them looking at one, I think obviously it's definitely a pandemic thing. They don't want any viruses being come, mm. coming into the country, but obviously we weren't hit the, like the rest of the world, but we did have unemployment, right? Um, so I think they're looking at trying to get those back to work before we then start influxing all of these other people that now are starting to look at Australia going, yeah, look, this is a great country to live in. Um, we want to live there. So they're just slowing things down. And that's how they do it, just by um, making sure that they can regulate it. Um, they use the island mentality very, very well.
4: And is the diversity piece broader than gender now? Um,
2: it certainly is, yeah, for here. so it, And it's been probably broader than gender for a while. Um, they're very, very yeah. big um, with the Aboriginal backgrounds. Um, yeah. So with anything that goes on here, I mean, they're very, very... Um, passionate about that so if like you have an event you have to do um a talk to country um and things like that so it's been bigger than probably gender for a while but I think when companies look at it and they look at diversity and inclusion they automatically just go gender diversity first um so yeah with the big organizations they still don't come away from that um as their first target yeah
4: okay
3: really interesting um and Chris, do you find that, obviously we mentioned the private equity firms looking at the talent data a little closer, yep. do you find that within your world and, and obviously tying through to the, the diversity piece, and I know there's been a lot of focus on on PE firms looking at diversity makeups of leadership teams and senior management teams, et cetera, what's your take on the whole
2: yeah, so, talent data? Yeah, so more? this has been big for, for definitely myself, so playing in that tech industry, a lot of the VC firms now are having centralised functions. Um, and asking for this intelligence so they know what they're going to invest in. Because obviously, we're not letting anyone in at the moment. Um, so let's just say the the war for talent on front-end engineers is absolutely exploding. Um, mm. And they're now looking at changing up what kind of companies they invest in, and they're influencing the tech stack that they're actually um, utilizing to to build this uh, product. Um, So they do come to us um, for insights, research and data. Um, And I've seen that shift definitely over the last six months for sure. So so I don't think that they're looking at a diversity of their portfolio from a product perspective. They're now looking at it with it being a a talent-driven perspective.
4: Really interesting. And that's a really neat lead into um asking more about you i think i'm um, so sorry alan i've nicked you kind yes. of intro. <laughs>
0: yes, i have very little to do as it is and now you're stealing the tiny pieces i do well there you go well, you,
4: asked, <laughs> you asked a lot of questions in news you were really loud that time i was like whoa hey, nick's not here and you're in his shoes all right i know my place um, <laughs> no, no i might need your help but yeah don't disappear um so chris i I yeah with with that in mind, you, you talked about research, you talked about insight, you talked about data yep. then um it what's your view on what talent intelligence is
2: so um so one of the things that i am um, I was really looking forward to coming on to this um so I think I've bastardized talent intelligence a little bit. Um, so I'm really looking forward to, I was, I listened to Toby, uh, and Nick on the last podcast that just dropped, um, I think today for me. Um, so for me, um, talent intelligence really does inform, I think, and it should the whole, um, organization, um, because we can take all of the information and I think it's not, I don't just use location. I don't just use skills and um, because I play also in that workforce transformation space um, I want to know from an external capacity that if I need to change up an organization can I and it has been done so a project that I did a couple of years ago and I think I've, I've spoken to Alan about this um, we transformed project engineers um, and we took scuba divers and then we we literally um, trained up scuba divers to be project engineers. We had a we, we had a project where we had to dig under the harbour. Um, there wasn't enough project engineers in the country at the time. We had a look at the daughter of how could we um, expand the workforce without doubling our budget? Because um, obviously within the area that I was in at the time, um, it was a government agency. Um, I couldn't steal off any other government agencies because there's obviously an interagency agreement. Um, but yeah, we, we ended up, uh, the the research and insights and the the data that was given to us, that there was a load of people that were open to transferring their skills, i.e. being underwater for significant amounts of time. Um, and we used the data that was given to us. Well, it was actually myself and, and my BA and uh, my data scientist at the time that said maybe we could transform the workforce in this way. And, and that's how I started... Now, as I go through all organisations is, okay, so if we've got this war for talent, how can we transform it? Um, And can I use external data to inform what I can do internally? So not just purely on what I've heard previously or what you can get off LinkedIn insights, so to speak. So that's my take that I utilise the external information. Um, And obviously we can explore it further, but I'd definitely like to see and what Toby thinks about that?
4: Um, Toby, go ahead because you know I'm going to say join the dots. So we we absolutely have to let you go on this.
3: <laughs> yeah, no, I, I I'd love to say that I I disagree and I think that's not ti and everything. So because we can make a big debate and challenge <laughs> challenge. But um, I think that's a great example. I think it's a really great example. You know, going back a couple of a couple of jobs, we, we did something similar with uh, network engineers in the rail signal. Yep. Couldn't find them for love no money. You know the, the the sourcing challenge was there, the recruitment challenge was there. Then we we realized you could just take another electrician, put them through a certain course, and it was a, a couple of weeks, or whatever it was. Uh, it just didn't make any sense not to do that. Um, I, I I think it, that that kind of job transferability I think is is really important, and I think that's one thing that some of the the vendors haven't necessarily. Got yet in my mind, and in actual fact, a lot, some of the, the, the government bodies that are looking at um, role taxonomies don't necessarily grab yet because they're still trying to drive things by function. They're still trying to drive things by job title, um, and I think nowadays it's much more around transferable skills. If you're a data scientist, you could be working in HR, you could be working in marketing, you could be working in finance, you could be working in wherever. You know, you could have a whole range of different job titles within there. It's the skills that are important. And that's, the, that's where a transferable... And I think to your point, it's not necessarily even the raw skills. It's what does that skill and that career path look like? Um, and I think career career thing is going to be something that's really interesting. We're starting to get better data on it. I think I've seen more people starting to play with it a bit. Um, but what, what are those journeys? Where can different career paths take people? And what skills um, uh, delta essentially is there between current skill to, to needed skill? But uh, yeah, I think that's a great example. Great example what of using is, TI. Actually.
4: For me, hearing both of you talk about that is um, we talk a lot about skills being at the absolute heart of business decision making. But both of you talked in those instances about a particular role um, or workforce that was hard to hire. And therefore, the, the kind of starting point for both of you in those instances was, was based on the war for talent. Whereas when we're talking to our clients, you know, our starting point is, is is kind of bigger questions. You know? So it's all about the transformation of an organization. And I'd love to kind of figure out you
1: know,
4: actually whether it's it's easier to say, is the starting point the burning platform that's in front of me, the role that I can't hire? Or are things like the SEC mandates going to raise talent intelligence to such a level that actually it is absolutely about the bigger
3: business transformation? I, I, I definitely have views, but Chris, uh, as the guest, I'll let you jump in first on that one.
2: Uh, yeah, so I, I, I do think um, I do apologise. I've just um, uh, I just had to let someone out of the house. So um, could you just repeat that again for me, Alison? I do apologise.
4: Yeah, I not you Toby was a bit mean to kick that at you. <laughs> um, um, I, I didn't realise. Sorry. It's all right. Don't worry. Um, so for, for me, one of the things that was interesting, um, Chris, when you and Toby were both talking then about the use of talent intelligence was that both of you talked about skills. Yep. Yeah. And, and we always think skills first. And we always think of skills at the center of, of decision making. Yep. But both you and Toby talked about it through the lens of a role that was difficult to hire so you both kind of started with this burning platform that was the war for talent against a particular job and and i just wonder whether things like the sec mandate and the kind of raising of the profile of human capital generally yep. whether that's in a big tech firm a high growth yep. firm mean that the starting point is going to be different the starting point isn't going to be a role that's hard to hire the starting point is going to be business transformation yes and i'd love to know your views yes, on that
2: so i i think maybe um I can allude a little bit further with the way that I was thinking with mine is business transformation is definitely I think where I would like to lead with and I, I'm hoping that I do lead with. Um so it's not necessarily a skill um for me, it's more about the person. So I, I try and always work in um as a, as everyone heard the like the network of teams philosophy. Um so obviously everyone has Two, three, four projects going at any one time, um, and I try to lead with and a lot of my sources, and that we have lots of questions that are out there uh, that they ask of: where is it that these people want to go? What, where have they come from to where they are now to where they want to go, um, and how can we as an organization assist that um, through a network of teams so they're not always just one hundred percent. Um, focused on their current skill um, or their current career path um, and how can that then inform the business as we look to transform and maybe pivot into this new way of world into the new way of working or the new world of working um, so I look at it from how do I assist the business in its most optimal case um, and not necessarily just try and fix a skills gap Um, I mean I do have a skills gap obviously you always do Um, but a workforce I think to truly transform a workforce you have to look at it holistically and not just skills but I know that we probably went straight to skills because it's the easiest piece to pick up first Um, but I do think if you've got that lens on it and I'm pretty sure the stuff that I've read from what Toby's put out there he does come at it from that angle but I think when we just talk it's easy to go skills first am I right there Toby?
3: Yeah, no, I'd agree with you. I think, I think TI has got kind of uh, multiple hats to wear. And, and I think some of it's going to be verging on that sourcing intelligence and ramping up and addressing the, the here and now and using intel to influence the decisions for the here and now. Um, I think as it starts tying in from a pure HR talent perspective, you can tie into talent forecasting, talent strategy, workforce planning, et cetera, and looking, kind of pushing things further out. But then I think that the, the beauty of what our function is, is we're the we're crossroads and we can also jump into the business and say, well, actually we can use TI to influence the strategy that's then going to influence the direction of where workforce planning and everything else is going to go. So uh, for, for me, I think we're, we're one of the few functions that can actually get into pretty much any function in the business to try and influence where they're trying to go, what they're trying to achieve. Because, you know, essentially, if you ask any senior leader, biggest asset? is their people. What's the biggest risk? Not having access to the right people to do the job. So uh, I think the beauty is we can we can pretty much get in wherever we, we want to to drive the business and then float through. Um, it's ju- just about being credible and, and having the right information and getting in the right way.
4: And that's the bit where I think things like the SEC mandate will start to raise the profile. Because it's yeah you know, it it's it's bringing you know whatever whatever every business leader said you know, talent are our most important assets but it's bringing it right to the fore and it's doing it in a data led fashion um, with metrics and and yeah uh, you know, when it's apples and apples the ability to benchmark yourself against your competitors um, and realise that you're either better or worse and therefore you can do something about it I think it's really exciting Chris what you you talked earlier about um, using data externally um. Can you give us some examples of the sort of data that you
2: use? Yeah, so um, obviously we use the standard ones, you know, location. I mean, I will say before I go into this that we um, as in Australia aren't GDPR compliant and don't need to be. So we do collect a lot of data that probably we might not be able to in a few years um, or whenever that does come this way. Um, so we do... So obviously the normal, you know, the skills, location, we also, uh, gender, uh, but what I like to look at is, um, again, and I will say that my sources are, and I think, um, Toby, you alluded to it on the last podcast was all when we work with sources, they speak to tens of thousands of people, right. Um, and we can utilize that data. Um, and all my sources are data driven. Um, and if they don't, have a data score that is um, higher than an 8 out of 10, then that affects their commission and their uh, bonuses, should we say. So I'm very big on making sure that we can influence um, our clients with lots and lots of different data points. So I use a data lake and I pull all this together. So not just the normal, bog standard data points. I would also... I do go into university degrees, we do capture a lot of history from the candidates that they um, speak to, um, what they do in their spare time. Um, And this comes down to when I'm looking at organizations and how we can have that network of teams, right? Um, Is does a project engineer from a TypeScript background, um, what do they like doing? Um, Just so we can collect this information One, what do they like doing? How much time do they spend on um, each of their tasks that they have currently in their job? Um, And that will also then inform us. So I can say, okay, so Intel, uh, TypeScript engineer, actually only spends 30% of his time coding, right? Um, That will then inform workforce planning and strategy to say, well, actually, over the course of your competitors, um, this is why a network of teams will work and this is how potentially we could do it. Um so we it's wide and varied, Alison, I will say. Um it's not just any specific. It'll be what a client of mine requires to then track back through the sources. So it is it I do collect a lot of information through the sourcing team.
0: Chris, I was gonna say, Chris, on that on that latter point, the those last bits of data around kind of interests and how people are are using their time, those are the sources of those data are relatively unstructured, I'm guessing. How do you gather that information and make it valid that you've got enough of it to be worth
2: it? Yeah, that's where the data lake comes in. So this is way above my technical uh, grade, obviously. Uh, but I do work with BI um, and data analysts, um, and they, they have built a data lake, So I believe, um, for all the unstructured data. Um, and they will that they've got a mechanism that will siphon this through. so I tell them what I want and what I need. Um, and then it pops out in a nice little bi report um, for me um, that I can then utilize as as we're on site at a client.
4: But it sounds like you've got you've got a whole bunch of quantitative stuff and then a whole bunch of qualitative mm. stuff. And so yes, yeah, some of it is unstructured and messy um, and and it needs putting out it needs some clever stuff doing to it. Um, But actually, there's a whole bunch of it that's still qualitative, that's that's, equally as valuable, Um, particularly when overlaid on Yeah, definitely.
2: And Uh, I don't think you should do one without the other. You should have a good blend and a mix um, of both, uh, because I I don't think you can just go with that unstructured data and try and inform anything. Do you know what I mean? Um, I think, again, you have to have a full report um, if you're going to truly influence a business.
4: I had, had this conversation with someone earlier, and they were saying, um, there, there's definitely a difference when people come at a problem having spent time in the world of talent then the way that you look at that problem is through the eyes of the business and then you try and answer the problem whereas actually if you're looking at it purely through a hey here's a bunch of tech and we can do something pretty whiz and bang through it it gives you different answers because you, you, you're, you're looking at it through a completely different lens and I think if I if I'm right everything that you're doing at Preactor, and, and we should talk about that much more, is, is about saying what's right for this particular client in this particular situation. So it's starting with business challenge yeah. first.
2: <clears throat> and it certainly is. And, and that's why we've pulled together, and I think this is where um, talent intelligence will really grow over the next couple of years, is I use that Tiger Team format, right, where you pull people in from different backgrounds because um, you want that diversity of thought. So I will come at it obviously having a talent background for 20 years Um, from that perspective. I've also got my CEO that I pull in um, to these meetings uh, because he's from a finance perspective. And then once you've got your data analysts and um, we've got qual and quant analysts, I can't remember fully, you know, so we have all of these. And then I always do bring in a sourcer or a talent acquisition person so that we've got a perspective from on the ground um, just so we can have that full diversity of thought because I think if you only come at it from a perspective of myself and um, you only get one view and then obviously these guys that are looking at the data um, if you only took how they dissected that data that also doesn't inform fully for the business Um so yeah, I I do like the tiger team concept, and I, I try and pull it into every. I try to bring it into every meeting, but it's not possible all the time.
0: I think that's really important because, it's all well, I'm good having having the data, but actually, how different people interpret that data might well well be different. So having that diversity of thought is really important it's um you mentioned something called tiger teams there and i might have come across it but i always remember a book i read by matthew saeed where he talks about rebel ideas and the power of diverse thinking and that's exactly that if you have a room of people are all from a similar background you actually come up with probably the same answer to a certain degree and really quickly it's not necessarily the right answer whereas a room full of people with the same information, but different experiences and different ways of looking things, will often come out with a better and more powerful way of using that information.
2: Exactly, and and I I agree, Alan, and that's why you know with my CEO having that accounting background, he can then target a message um, to the CFO who is usually going to have the budget for sign off, right? Um, and then I have a targeted message for you know your your hrd or your cpo or your head of talent um and then the other guys have that other informed view so your sorcerer and your talent person that could be that talent lead um that's also in the room so everyone's getting a great message and in the same tone that they like to receive it
0: Mm, that makes sense sorry alison i jumped in then
4: that's all right. Don't worry. Um, talk to me a bit about Preactor because I, 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 the name instantly is awesome. So, yeah, this ability to preempt and to act and to stay ahead of the game. What, what does that mean? What does that mean in practice in terms of kind of who your typical client base is? And then how do they integrate TI? I,
2: I joined Preactor about a year ago. So during um, the pandemic. Um, and I joined them because they were data driven. Right. Right. Um, They obviously, uh, they were initially um, an agency, and we still have the agency um, side of the business. Um, But I head up the talent solutions, what it is. Um, So in essence, we parachute teams um, into tech organizations, um, and we cover off anything from obviously sourcing talent acquisition um, and with it being data driven, over the last year we've turned that into a true research insights, and which is a, slowly evolving into that um, talent intelligence part of the business, uh, which everyone seems to be looping in, buying in, and it's probably one of the biggest cells that we have right now. Uh, we also have a true consultancy mm-hmm. model um, where we'll look at um, people analytics. We will also look at talent strategy, talent ops, and then obviously workforce strategy planning and and management as we move forward. So um, three pillars, um, you know, very delivery focused. Then I think that in research, insights, intelligence focused, and then how we put both of those and and put the strategy together. So that's how we um, that's how we're structured. Um, As I said, tech businesses is, is where we're at. Um, at the moment. I don't think we'll come out of that tech industry. It's where Preactor was born from. It's where they play best. Um, And I think it's where a lot of this kind of thinking is really being um, taken on board uh, a lot quicker from my perspective in the startup world.
4: Um, Okay, so that's a a bit I was going to ask. So is is it... um... Is there a focus around kind of startups? Is there a focus around scale-ups and high-growth tech? Or is it kind of the big boys and girls that, who, that we would expect and anticipate? Um,
2: <clears throat> so we're probably focused more at the moment on hyper-growth. Um, so those businesses that are looking at scaling anywhere between two to 300 um, in, in, yep. in a year. Um, the startups are it's, – it's probably a very different model um to what we deliver to them. Um, it is probably a little bit of um tactical delivery. Um, and then they're just trying to understand um, that intelligence piece, the research insights, because obviously they just want to go gangbusters and and hire the first 10, 20, 30 people. Um, and this is where now I was uh, what we spoke about earlier, those VCs are asking them to take the time, understand before going out to execute. Um, so yeah, we're probably targeted mainly in that hyper growth area. Um, at the moment we aren't in, we we haven't touched on enterprise as such. We're probably up to around that five, five to 7,000 mark, um, is probably where our sweet spot is at the moment.
4: Okay. Now, now a long time ago, I worked for a private business that was an Australian business. So I, I worked in EMEA, but it was, the business was called Talent Intelligence, um, and, and interestingly, their background was that one of the founders, um, kind of in theory, brought military intelligence to the table. You know, and it was this concept of of thinking differently about your competitors and about being, uh, you know, able to be proactive and pipelining. in In reality, at that time in APAC, um, the majority of the work that they were delivering was really talent pipelining work, um, and talent mapping work and and it wasn't necessarily what the purists would would now call talent intelligence so if you kind of took that as a as a kind of phrase do you think that the use of insights is still pretty much in its infancy i would in yeah. or in, in no
2: definitely so, and and that's why i think um we're so busy at the moment because people that so what i would say is that companies know that they need something um but they don't know what they don't know right so i would say 100% that like the ti scene over in apac is definitely in its infancy um that's probably why i don't use the term um even though we are slowly drip feeding it in um i wouldn't use it because people yeah. are just like "Whoa, well, what does that mean um and in essence they they just get blown away by by certain words right so i would say it's definitely growing so the research insights and data piece is growing um it's not anywhere near where it should be or or the maturity level of which it should be at and i i don't think that even what we offer is where it should be and thus while alluded to listening to toby um, and joining obviously um the group um so it's definitely something that i do think will explode and and where APAC. What APAC usually does is once they go, okay, I now understand it. I now understand yeah. how I can execute it. Let's go, and it will then
4: grow quicker than most. Yeah, yeah. If you could wave a, if you could wave a magic wand. Sorry, Toby, go ahead.
3: Sorry, I was just going to ask. I'll say, I, I, do you think that the the data quality aspect is going to be one of the prohibitors for growth. So I know when we've done work in the past and it's come up a few times in, in the podcast when we talk to people, um, data quality, when you look into certain parts of APAC, it's just so hard to get good quality granular data that, that that's um, reliable. Um, do, do you think that's going to inhibit the growth of TI as a concept, or do you think the, there's going to be work around and people are going to find other data sources? <coughs>
2: I think what will happen is that they will find those other data sources. I do, I do agree with you, Toby, that um, the data quality is probably not there for us. So like I say, I do think it will um, probably inhibit the growth to start with. But I think if we can start looking at how we find different data points um, and different sources of that data, because it is there, it just probably takes a little bit more finding of where it's kept, over, especially in Australia um then i think as soon as someone has found that we start sharing it where we can get it um i do think it'll come but i think like most things over this this way of the world um it takes us a bit of time to catch you guys up do you know what i mean so i think they're a bit more conservative in what is possible to that but once they do understand it um then the, they're fast moving they're quick adopters do you know what i mean once someone has done it first. And, yeah.
0: And you've got some you've got some amazing brands that are coming out of Australia the likes so of zero of this world and Canva and Atlassian, and some really successful brands that as they grow Bigger into the global space, and they see what possible what's possible from this kind of stuff. Correct that Actually, that demand in itself will accelerate things. It's, it always does. If the demand's there, the, the 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 will and desire to meet that demand is accelerated so much faster, isn't it?
4: But interesting. I think there's there's two arms to that, though. There's there's the um because i you know I took the words well, Chris took the words out of my mouth earlier. Yeah, the data is there. It's not that the data isn't there. It's just that the the big global players haven't been bothered to to do some of the local mm. language work that needs to happen in APAC um, and and I think that there's yes there's great brands coming out of Australia and they're going to kind of see some of the stuff that's happening and take it home but you know what there's also a whole bunch of of big brands that are already there mm. um, that aren't necessarily just in adversity commas australian driven businesses or apac driven businesses you know and 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 i think there's there's therefore two ways of looking at it there's the west going east but there's also the east coming west um and and it's just about taking the time you we do it on a client by client basis if a client says to us actually it's really important for us to understand what's going on in jakarta um, then we will pull out every single data source. We'll work with local language experts. We'll pull it in and pull it into the platform. So I think you know, we, we flippantly hear from people the data isn't there. And Chris said it, it is there. It's just that people need to be bothered to mm. look at it in a different way and use it in a different way. And it sounds like that's some of the stuff the Pro actors do. Yeah,
2: it certainly is. Um, and and that's when I moved over here 10 years ago, I didn't realise um, how different I mean, I think, you know, you become a bit localized um, being in EMEA or the U.S., very similar in ways of working. Um, But the APAC market is very, very different. Um, You know, uh, just ways of working, what they classify things. And, you know, even now, 10 years in, I'm still learning certain things um, that are different to what was back home
0: we you've got vast cultural differences across the APAC market itself, haven't you yeah. you know Europe yes, there's lots of different nationalities and languages, but there's a fair amount of shared shared experiences shared background and shared culture across the whole of Europe and likewise the Americas but if you look at APAC as a region, it's so literally diverse that there are yeah. tons of different ways of working from one country to the next yeah
4: if you could wave a, a magic wand right yeah. now what would you have from a data perspective?
2: Oh, geez. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Um, That's, I mean, I just, I I don't think you can ever have too much data, right? Um, But then also too much data, you're never going to deliver on anything. Um, So my, I think we should have, I'm still big on the diversity piece, right? Because we still um, and I, I I look at the way that we're looking at diversity in general, and I, I look at it from outside of Australia, right, and how we're trying to change things. I also look at it internally and, and see how we're looking at changing that. Um, I just don't think we have enough data on to eventually change it. I don't think some of these initiatives are going to work. Um, you know, like I was in one organization and it was, it goes back to gender, right, of we need to um, interview 50% females. And, and that's fine, but I don't think that's how you fix a diversity and inclusion. No. I think we can fix it by a data-driven decision-making process. Um, <laughs> and I really do. And I took this, so it was a couple of years ago, I and the organization hated it, right? Um, but I started putting in timesheets, for instance, right? I wanted to understand... And we'll bring it down to a recruiter. I wanted to understand what a recruiter did on a daily basis, right? How much time were they doing all of their tasks and and what actual tasks did they not like doing? Once I broke, I mean, the pushback on this was amazing. But um, once they understood that it wasn't there for me to fire you, um, it was there for me to enhance the organization, um It went really well, so we mapped out then i'll take we mapped out more than recruiters, but i'll use it just for recruiters um and once I'd looked at what a recruiter did and how much I could take away from that recruiter, whether I could automate it right whether I could put technology over that um then make them positive to the business, I also then started looking at other forms of their job and could I add other different layers onto that to make it actually a different job um And then is there, you know, anything from these other diverse backgrounds that could potentially look at that? And we looked at it from an Aboriginal perspective that could they come into an organisation and then we grow them through the organisation at this level. So that's why I I just believe that um, I think we can tell by data uh, in so many different ways. But that's just my perspective
4: really interesting hey that's what you're here for you you're our guest we love your perspective um I've, i've got one one question that's a kind of a bit of a burning question for me i think um if you listen to the podcast you'll you'll probably be as bored as the rest of the others but i talk a lot about this joining the dots and and that's this piece about um understanding that you can't just look at it through a skills lens you've got to join that up with business risk with real estate cost, with location, with tunnel attractiveness, which kind of ties back to that quantum qual piece that you were talking about earlier. Um, and I think there's there's something really exciting about a marketplace being in its infancy um, and the ability therefore to kind of almost shape it and shape it as a strategic way of thinking rather than yeah rather than anything else. Um, I don't know if the audio is still with us, but if it is and you heard that, what do you think the opportunity is to shape the marketplace?
0: Sorry. We might have had a a brief blip there. Oh, you are back, Chris? I am back.
2: I think I just – I heard the marketplace piece, but I think I missed – probably the 30, 40 seconds before that.
4: Obviously, that was the most brilliant 30 <laughs> to 40 seconds. <laughs> Thankfully, but, um, but exactly, we have I'll an amazing it.
0: editor we found out. So this will <laughs> always be seamless with the episode when it goes out.
4: <laughs> yeah. Um, but I'll, I'll, I'll phrase it again. So I think one of the things that's quite interesting when we talk about talent intelligence over here, and, and granted I'm biased because I talk about it through the lens of our platform, um, But we talk about joining the dots between skills, between business risks, between real estate, between location costs and and between kind of R and D and innovation. And if you just look at it through one of those lenses, you're missing a trick. One of the things that I think is really exciting about your marketplace is actually the ability that you have got to shape what talent intelligence could be. And so I guess if you had a vision for what it could be, um, and if you were shaping the marketplace what
2: would it be? Um, What would I make this marketplace? Um, I think an all-encompassing function that um, really takes, I'd love it to take external, use internal data and truly inform um, how businesses are growing. I think if we can really um, inform that, that would be where I'd like to take it. Because I think that the and i think toby touched on it earlier on i don't think that there's any ceiling to this function right um i really do think and believe that it can parachute into anywhere across the organization um and it be influential so i'd i'd like to keep it I, if i could do that now i'd i'd like to put it at that level um instead of it you know like talent acquisition has through the years it's just been a service industry it's been a cost center it's been and they're trying to elevate it um so that's where i'd probably put that is at that that it's a true um a true strategy thinking function
4: yeah and yeah wow the opportunity is now yes
2: exactly
0: absolutely i'm gonna do my thing guys and jump in. The nope. mere idea of a podcast lasting longer than an hour would just put shivers shivers into my bones, so to speak. We'd be talking for an
4: hour.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Which <gasps> uh, but, but tells me everything, and I know it's a, I say every episode, but you know we do have to stop at some point, and um, yeah, you know, we could probably keep chatting for another hour quite easily, but we can't do that. We've got to stop eventually, and I think that time probably has arrived now. Um, on that note of Chris, Chris's vision for Ti, Chris, massive thanks to you. you. You've been great. As they say here in the Midlands, you've been great, my And um, how did you find it?
2: I've really enjoyed it. Um, I love speaking to you know um, guys like yourselves that are trying to move um, an industry and um, elevate it. Obviously, taking pearls of wisdom as we go through, and obviously challenging my thinking around that, I think it's awesome. So, yeah, I think you're on to a great thing here, guys. and really enjoyed it. Thank you for having me.
0: Excellent. As always, um, thanks, Alison and Toby, for co-hosting. We're, we're, we're on to our ninth. This is our ninth we've done. Wow. Um, I think we've wow. done brilliantly. So we've got double digits for the next episode.
3: <laughs> I didn't think we'd make three. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
0: ever the optimist, eh? Hey? <laughs> um, <laughs> To Mr. Brooks, sorry to sound like um, Liam Neeson from Taken, but we know where you are, we know what you're doing, and we know it can't be as good as this episode, but we'll still have you back. Um, And to our listeners, uh, you know, huge thanks for listening as ever. And as ever, my closing cheesy statement, stay intelligent, folks. Thanks for listening. Before you go, I wanted for the last time to remind you about our generous sponsor, Strategins. Here's that posh chap again, telling you about their fabulous product.
1: Strategins gives HR leaders the data they need to transform businesses with the speed and ease required in today's world. If you're ready to make decisions that aren't lengthy, costly, one-dimensional, or based on gut feeling, visit strategins.com. That's stratigens.com to register for a Wednesday demo drop in and find out more.